0: Hello there, it's Marshall here, coming to you from Tumble's summer quarters deep in outer space. For my summer vacation, I decided to take a road trip out to the Andromeda Galaxy. I hear it's really nice this time of year. Lindsay and I will be back with more new episodes soon, but in the meantime, we wanted to give you this extra special bonus pack for your summer road trip. We've taken a bunch of our favorite episodes about outer space and mashed them together into one great big summer road trip and fun pack. Download this before you go on any long trip someplace, and you'll have more than an hour of Tumble listening. But before we get to the episodes, here's a quick shout out to our new Patreon patrons. We've got quite a few new patrons to thank, including Parsa, a six-year-old fan from Colorado, Addie and Libby, the tough Colorado girls who increased their pledge, Carol Patterson, Owen Connors, Lily Duquette, and Jake Duquette, and lastly, Peter Zandan, who told us he really likes tunnels. If you'd like to be like these awesome people, please come support Tumble on Patreon. We really depend on our patrons in order to keep bringing you these great stories of science discovery. At the moment, we're doing a drive to get to 150 patrons, and we are so close to our goal. If we reach it before the end of July, I'll post a video of me doing something silly of your choice. Thank you all so much. And now, we're off to space! I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. On today's episode, A Year on Mars. The good and the bad of leaving home for life on the red planet.
1: hazel sent us some ideas about what they would pack for a year on mars
2: i would take my mom um, because she's a good knitter and she could knit me a blanket and or a hat i would break the seeds we could plant food i would bring my sister because because she plays with me and if nobody's there to play with me you'd probably get bored and just go home and i would also love to bring my house because why would you want to live in this like rover space tech thing i would love to just live in my house there
1: man thinking about packing for a week-long trip is hard enough i have no idea what i would take for a year on mars
0: definitely at least seven pairs of underpants (laughs) yeah (laughs) And probably lots of those fig bars you can get at Costco. I love those.
1: <laughs> yeah. It will be a long, long time before there's a Costco on Mars. But <laughs> despite the lack of Costco, which we need for survival, NASA plans to send the first human crew to live on the planet in 2030. Right now, scientists are hard at work figuring out how to prepare for a trip. And Shayna Gifford is one of them.
3: Basically, all you needed were a few changes of clothes, some shoes, a lot of shoes, and, you know, a few personal toiletries. But that's about it. I mean, Mars comes equipped with everything else you need.
1: Shayna is a physician and a journalist, and she spent a year in a Mars simulation.
0: What does that mean?
1: She pretended to live on Mars for a full year with five other people. And every day, they dealt with the challenges of living on Mars. Isolation, limited food supplies, spacesuits,
3: and some things you wouldn't expect. Even though you're in space, you can't see space in the dome. So ironically, the only way to see stars and space is to project them on the ceiling.
1: If you're planning on spending a year on Mars, expect to spend a lot of time inside.
0: I'm guessing that's because going outside takes a lot of effort, and the air might turn you into a toxic mutant.
1: Not the mutant part, but yeah. There's not enough oxygen to breathe, the planet's full of radiation, and the weather is extreme to say the least. So taking a
3: stroll is hard to do, even if you're just pretending. Well, when you go to put in a spacesuit, you have to figure out how to negotiate this thing with really big pants and really big shoulders and a really big helmet. Usually you'd step into it first and pull it up to your waist and get your waist strapped in and then you would pull it up over your shoulders, down over your head, and then turn the fans on to make sure they were working because you need to have air circulating in your space so you'll actually suffocate. So you turn your fans on, they... And then you check your radio. And then you seal yourself in. And then you stand in the airlock for five minutes while the dome atmosphere is sucked out and the Martian atmosphere is pushed in. And then once those five minutes have passed, you can go outside and do your work.
0: So that sounds really uncomfortable, like worse than the summers in Texas. I mean, except the really bad ones. Remind me, why do we want to live on Mars again? Despite
1: how intense it is, scientists believe that for humans, Mars is the best place to try to live off Earth.
0: But What about the moon? I mean, we've gotten there and uh, it seems like a nice place. They have some good cafes, a few shops. A flag. A flag. (laughs) (laughs) Mars is so much further
3: away. The moon is close, but it has a lot of issues. Not a lot of good radiation shielding. Not a lot of gravity. Only one-sixth gravity. So things bounce really high, which is fun, but may not be a great place for us to live long-term.
0: Being able to jump around really high actually sounds like it'd be great. (laughs)
1: Yeah. The lack of gravity is great for bouncing, but it's bad for
3: our bones and muscles. Mars has more gravity than the moon because it's bigger. Mars, on the other hand, has as much land as all of the whole Earth. If you pile all the continents together, Mars has that much land. It also has a tilt, just like we do, so it has seasons. It has a day almost as long as ours. And it's also a really neat landscape. It has big caves that would be good to build in. We could build whole cities down there.
0: So Mars is like kind of a fixer-upper.
3: Exactly. And as
1: far as the Milky Way goes... It's one of the better options to invest in real estate these
0: days. (laughs) Just needs a little paint and maybe a way to shield from the deadly radiation and the crazy weather.
1: I mean, you're going to have issues no matter where you buy these days.
0: (laughs) Realistically, we won't be colonizing Mars for a long, long time. So where do you go to pretend you're on Mars?
1: Sim Mars, as they call it is
3: on the largest volcano in the world.
0: No, you're talking about Mauna Loa in Hawaii.
3: Exactly. Mars is a volcanic environment, and Mars looks an awful lot like actual Mars.
0: So that was enough to convince them that they were on real Mars?
1: It was actually pretty convincing. They were isolated on this volcano that's covered in red and black, jagged volcanic rock. And every time they went outside, they had to wear that heavy space suit any communication with people outside had a 20-minute delay on it,
3: just like it would be on Mars.
0: Still, they must have realized they were still on Earth.
3: So we are not on Mars, obviously. Um, The sky is blue. The sky is not blue on Mars. There are clouds. There is rain. There is too much gravity. There are many indicators that you are not on Mars. They're in-between worlds. So, you're not on Mars, but you're not on Earth either. You're in Sim.
0: So, all the living conditions were designed to match a real future Mars mission.
1: The team was mostly confined to their solar-powered dome. They were even tested with real Mars emergencies and possible Mars
3: problems. Imagine waking up early and the first thing you wonder is, do we have any power? So you have to check the power systems. If you don't have very much power, then you can't turn the lights on. and You can't make yourself any food or any hot water.
0: That sounds really hard.
3: You basically become a scientist farmer on a good day. And then on a bad day, you're a plumber, electrician, sewage repair person. It's not glamorous a lot of the time.
0: Clearly living on Mars is a lot of work, but what do you get to do for fun?
3: Crew members read,
1: they write, they play games. But they also get to explore Mars. Oh,
0: well that's pretty cool. Do you bring a soccer ball?
3: Sometimes we'd be going outside to clean the windows. Sometimes we'd be going outside to collect rocks for an experiment or to take measurements. Sometimes we'd be going outside to play, to go on long walks or explore caves. Sometimes at night, I would often go outside to take photographs.
0: Well, that sounds cool.
3: Everything
1: Sheena and the other astronauts did on simulated Mars was monitored with cameras and body movement trackers.
0: So that they could prepare their reality show, The Real World, Mars.
1: <laughs> I know, I can't believe MTV hasn't done this yet. <laughs> no, back on Earth, other NASA scientists were studying how the group was dealing with the stress of living and working together in such a small place.
0: They were trying to find out what happens when people stop being polite and start being real.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I know. Sheena did describe it as kind of a reality show, but only NASA and researchers from the University of Hawaii were watching them.
0: So either way, it seems like they're a little bit more lab rat than they are scientists.
3: They are data. So that's what an astronaut is. They exercise when they're told to. They eat when they're told to. They sleep when they're told to. They do the experiments they're told to do. They are the science. That's what you are when you're an astronaut. You are science. NASA has now done four Mars simulations, and they plan on doing many more. Each time, they have a different team, and they're getting new and different data. They're trying to establish a pattern of human behavior. Of course, here's the interesting thing. No two crews are alike. The reason they have to keep iterating the experiment or doing it over and over is because they're looking for a pattern that sustains even when the crews change.
0: So what kind of pattern?
3: A pattern to human psychology.
1: Everyone gets sad or mad or whatever at some point, but no two people feel the same way. Shayna said that is why people, and not planets, are the biggest X-factor in space travel.
0: never really thought about an astronaut getting sad or mad. I just think of them as being, like, extremely well put together.
1: (laughs) Well, more than anything, they're humans. They're facing big challenges, stressful times, and they're with a small group of people in an enclosed space for a really long time. And that's the whole point of why NASA runs these
3: experiments. It's not just fun to play pretend.
0: Though that's surely part of it.
3: They were looking at how well the group sticks together, works together... And gets along in that one-year time when they only have each other. So
0: it's like a never-ending car trip. At some point, everyone will start to annoy you and put their feet on your side. (laughs) (laughs) Captain! (laughs) Jenkins, put her feet on my side of the spaceship again.
1: Tell her to stop touching me.
0: (laughs) Do I have to turn this ship around? We're halfway to Mars. It'll take us a year to get back. I
1: know. On a road trip, on a regular road trip, you can pull over and get ice cream to calm everyone down. But in space, you have to keep working together as a strong team. And there's a limited amount of ice cream.
3: People who don't get along don't accomplish much together. They don't do school projects well together. They don't play on baseball teams well together. They don't sit down and have dinner very well together. So it's important that people get along in all circumstances. But in space, there's no one else to help you. You can't just walk out and say, you know what? I'm tired of being here. I don't want to talk to you anymore. We're done. There's nowhere else to go, and there's nowhere for them to go.
0: So the more we talk about this, the more difficult life on Mars, I mean, simulated Mars, sounds. So why did Shayna sign up for this?
3: Shana
1: says that she was as excited to go to Sim Mars as other people are to go
3: to Disneyland. Ever since I was a kid, ever since I can remember, I've loved space, and I thought that space was amazing. I was pursuing the dream of a lifetime. So that's not giving anything up, quite the opposite. This is about your future and your ability to go do whatever you want, to live in space, to visit space, to go and come back or go and stay.
1: Marshall, if we were to go live on Mars together, how do you think we'll do?
0: (laughs) I mean, not well, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's hard enough for us to just, like, keep the dishes clean. <laughs> yes.
1: Would you want to be an astronaut in Sim or in space? Go to our blog and check out the job requirements for Shayna's mission and Mars One, a private company that wants to establish the first human settlement on Mars.
0: And you'll find out why all aspiring astronauts have to go on a backpacking trip as part of the application process, and they don't have to do it in spacesuits for some reason.
2: It
1: would be a little bit too heavy of a load.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Just think, like, climbing a mountain in a spacesuit? That would be so hard.
1: (laughs) Thanks to Dr. Shana Gifford. You can read her thoughts and experiences from her year on Mars, or High Seas 4, as the mission was called, at her blog... Live from Mars.life. We'll have the link on our own blog on our website, tumblepodcast.com.
0: Thanks also to Caleb and Hazel. Sarah Lentz is our associate producer and she wrote this show. I'm Marshall Escamilla and I made all the music. I'm Lindsay Patterson and I produce this show. Thanks for listening and tune in next time for more stories of science discovery. Hi, I'm Lindsay and I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery.
1: Today we're on the hunt for
0: aliens. We'll find out how scientists are searching the vast expanse of the universe to find intelligent life.
1: Turns out aliens might be listening to the radio,
0: which means that they have Justin Bieber's music stuck in their heads too.
2: and i'm from new zealand my question is are we alone in space or is there any other life forms out there
0: the age-old question do aliens exist what do you think i think it would explain why some people wear the clothes they wear at festivals
2: (laughs) i got interested in this because one night i saw something in the sky
0: did he see a ufo an unidentified flying object
2: I mean, we know the truth is out there. It is. There's a lot of solar systems and planets out there, and scientists could use the Humble Telescope or something like that to look into planets and find out.
1: No one has found the answer to Daniel's question yet. I imagine
0: if we did know the answer, we'd probably have heard about it and you wouldn't just be hearing about it on a podcast.
1: (laughs) We would not be breaking news right here, right now, on Tumble. (laughs) Scientists are looking, and I talked to one of
4: them. My name is Seth Shostak, and I am senior astronomer at the SETI Institute here in lovely, glamorous Mountain View, California.
1: SETI, that's the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. The SETI Institute is dedicated to looking for life outside our planet. So, Seth hears from a lot of people like Daniel who think they've seen something.
4: Usually once a day, somebody will call me up or they'll send me an email and they say, look, uh, you know, I saw something, I think it, it may be extraterrestrials, and uh, you know, I think you ought to take a look
0: at it. It seems like it's almost human nature to want to believe that there's something more out there.
1: Or to ask when we're looking up at the stars, are we alone?
4: I'm sure that the question is as old as humanity.
1: It wasn't until we started to look at the stars through a scientific lens that anyone thought we could find signs of life on other planets.
4: Beginning with the invention of the telescope around 1600, people look at the moon and they see all these sort of craters, and they say, well, these look like
0: cities to us. The telescopes really weren't that great back then, so there was probably a lot of room left over for the imagination.
1: A lot of space between your eye and that planet. All (laughs) imagination.
4: (laughs) A hundred years ago, people thought there were canals on Mars, and the experiment to prove that involved just looking at Mars through a telescope.
1: There was one guy named Percival Lowell who practically invented the idea of Martians. He believed that he could see canals on the surface of Mars, waterways built by intelligent life.
0: Like little green men, like Marvin the Martian?
1: Exactly! Other astronomers were skeptical, though, because they couldn't see the canals Lowell was talking about.
0: (laughs) These canals you're talking about? Uh, not there, dude. Yeah.
1: His theories were completely disproved when we got better telescopes and actually saw the surface of Mars.
0: So when did scientists start to take the search for alien life seriously? Modern
4: experiments to look for life in space began really in 1960 when a fellow by the name of Frank Drake used an antenna in West Virginia and pointed that antenna in the direction of a couple of nearby stars, hoping to eavesdrop on radio signals.
0: So wait, did he say radio signals? Like, do they listen to NPR? When they land, will they say, take us to click and clack, the Tappet <laughs> brothers? Their jokes are so delightful. They helped us repair our spaceship.
5: Well,
1: (laughs) I'm not sure. (laughs) But that same technology of radio waves that carry our voices and our music might help us make contact
4: with aliens. In the same way that you can send messages with, you know, just using a flashlight or even a mirror in the sunlight, you know, flashing your buddy down the street there, uh, some sort of Morse code message, you can
0: also use radio to do that. And radio goes through space. So radio can be a way to pass notes through space, like aliens writing a little folded piece of paper, I like you, Earth.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. And the radio waves Seth is talking about aren't the same kind you get in your car. The transmissions are much more powerful, and they're pointed at distant
4: galaxies. So this kind of astounded people. They realized... That even in, uh, you know, in, in, in the late 1950s, we already had technology that would allow you to send bits of information from one star system to another.
0: To think people were just making silly little radio programs with this powerful technology.
4: I know. Podcasts
1: are a huge improvement.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so Frank Drake thought that if our radio waves might be reaching far into outer space, maybe there are aliens out there broadcasting straight to us.
4: There are planets out there that are billions of years older than the Earth. So if there's anybody on those planets, right, they've had more time to develop their technology than we have. Maybe they figured out that, you know, if you want to send a message to, I don't know, a spacecraft that's far away from you or to some colony you have on another planet far away, you might use radio to do that, radio waves, because they go through space and they go... As fast as anything can go,
1: back on our home planet in 1960, Frank Drake was using radio waves to study the universe.
4: He was doing astronomy, but then he realized that duck on it, this same equipment, these giant antennas that he had, could be used to try and eavesdrop on signals from from aliens that could be you know, just ricocheting around the, the universe. And all he would have to do is just point the antenna, at the sky at some nearby stars, which might have planets, and, and hope to pick up a signal. So
0: did he get anything?
4: No, but
1: the idea caught on.
4: Everybody got very excited because they thought, wow, this is really neat. We might be able to find the aliens without having to you know, build rockets that we can't build to go and find them or wait for them to land in the backyard. Beginning in the 1970s, NASA got involved. They actually uh, started a, a whole experiment to do this on a big scale. Unfortunately, that project was canceled in 1993.
1: When NASA quit the business of alien hunting, there were still plenty of people who thought it was worthwhile. One of the founders of Microsoft helped the SETI Institute, where Seth works, build the radio telescopes they used to search for intelligent life.
4: But we put it in the mountains because, uh, you know, the mountains kind of block all the interference, all the radio signals from San Francisco and other places here that would otherwise confuse you. But if you visited there, you'd see 42 antennas. These are pretty big antennas. You'd you'd have a hard time getting them into your house, but you could fit one in the backyard. And uh, these 42 antennas work as a team. They all get pointed in the same direction.
0: So they're listening for radio signals from aliens?
4: Yes.
1: They have extremely powerful receivers attached to those antennas. So your car radio can pick up a bunch of channels. These radio telescopes can pick up many,
4: many more. Because we don't know where the aliens are going to be broadcasting, where on the dial they might be. We have uh, receivers that can listen to 50 million different channels all at the same time.
0: 50 million channels? I mean, so it's got to be like a 100% chance that you're going to find some alien pop songs.
1: No, it's basically dead air.
0: Dead air? So like, no signs of life, no, like very distant Alpha Centauri.
4: (laughs) You know, this is not a kind of experiment where you're close. Either you found them or you haven't found them.
1: And they haven't found them for 50 years since Frank Drake started his experiments.
4: Yeah, 50 years is a long time, but the equipment has not been so very good for most of that time where we could look at more than one star system at a time.
0: So what exactly is the point of monitoring 50 million channels if you don't hear anything for 50 years? That's like 250 million year channels.
1: (laughs) Channel years. (laughs) They're called channel
0: years.
4: (laughs)
1: Well, just because they haven't found anything yet doesn't mean they're never going to find anything.
4: It's been said it's like going down to the ocean with a, you know, with a cup and taking out a cup of water and looking in and say, hey, see any fish? No. Well, I wonder, maybe that means there are no fish in the ocean. No, it doesn't. It just means you didn't look at enough ocean.
1: There are a couple of hundred billion star systems, just like our solar system, in our own galaxy, the Milky Way. Multiply that by a hundred billion galaxies in the universe, and you get the idea that there are a lot of places left to look.
0: But are radio waves the only way to look? Like, couldn't aliens communicate other ways?
4: Yes, there, there are other ways to look for ET instead of radio waves. You could look for flashing lights in the sky. That's one thing. And in fact, we're building some equipment to do that. Because you don't know. Maybe the aliens are just you know,
0: flashing lasers at you every two weeks. Well, if an alien really wanted to drive us crazy, that would be a great way to do it.
1: It's kind of like flashing a laser pointer at a cat.
0: You want to make the humans jump? Watch what they do when we flash at them. (laughs) The other
4: idea is that there's some mysterious things in space that make these very, very brief flashes of radio waves and light waves. They're called fast radio bursters.
1: These fast radio bursters are currently a mystery of science. They could be in alien communication... Or they could just be something weird happening in a black hole somewhere.
0: Like a message from the overcat.
1: (laughs) But astronomers are determined to find out what they are and where or who they're coming from.
0: But what if, like Daniel asked, there is no intelligent life out there?
4: We will never know that the answer is no, right? Because if you don't find something, that doesn't mean that it's not out there. It just means that you didn't find it. I guess it's pretty hard to prove that something isn't
0: there.
1: That's true in science in general. It also means that we'll be looking for intelligent life for a long time.
0: There is no quitting in alien hunting.
1: At least not for Seth. He has this insane curiosity about this question that we all ask, and he's pursuing the answer.
0: Very
4: interesting. That's what science is about. Curiosity, just to know whether our planet is the only one that has not only life but intelligent life, or is intelligent life and and life in general, is that just all over the place and, you know, this is just one more place? It it would be really interesting to know the answer to that.
1: It's not just the SETI Institute looking for the answer. A research program called Breakthrough Listen is using super powerful telescopes around the world to search one million stars for radio signals, and laser signals.
0: Some of the most famous scientists in the world are helping out.
1: They haven't found anything yet. But with aliens, you're never close to finding the answer. When we find them, we'll know. We want to know what you think. Will we find other intelligent life in the universe?
0: And if so, what kind of clothes might they wear?
1: What kind of food might they eat?
0: What kind of sports would they play? Would they be fans of LeBron?
1: (laughs) Of course they would. His (laughs) skills are undeniable.
0: That's true. (laughs) Even extraterrestrials could appreciate it.
1: (laughs) Seth Shostak is senior astronomer at the SETI Institute. When he's not searching for aliens, he makes a radio show and podcast like any sane person who has a tiny bit of extra time on their hands would. It's called Big Picture Science. Also thanks to Daniel from New Zealand for his awesome question. Keep looking for aliens, Daniel.
0: Check out our blog at tumblepodcast.com to learn more about SETI and the weird and wonderful tale of when people thought there were canals on Mars.
1: And, as always, we'll really appreciate it if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, if you haven't already. Our intern is Andrea Gonzalez.
0: Sarah Lentz is our associate producer. I'm Lindsay, and I wrote and produced this show. And I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I wrote all the music. Tune in next time for more stories of science discovery. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery.
1: Our solar system is on a mind-blowing journey through space, and we're along for the ride. But how do scientists know where we're headed?
0: It's not like they can look it up on Google Maps.
1: Today, we'll find out.
2: My name is Nevada Do solar systems move or do they just stay there? I definitely
1: remember learning in school that planets move around the sun, but I never really thought about whether the solar system itself is moving through space.
0: So is Earth and all of our fellow planets just on some crazy ride through the universe, or are we just sitting like a mobile in a third grade classroom?
1: For an answer to Levin's question, I talked to Stephanie Milam, an astrochemist who studies the solar system.
6: I get to go to telescopes and study the chemistry in space. So the entire universe is actually my laboratory now.
1: Stephanie told me that the planet orbiting around the sun is just the first part of how our solar system moves in space.
6: Our solar system is within a galaxy, and that galaxy is called the Milky Way. And we actually live in one of the arms of the galaxy.
0: So if the Milky Way galaxy was a city, we're like tucked away on a little cul-de-sac, a quiet neighborhood. We're sitting on some pretty good real estate, although it might take us a long time to get to work.
1: (laughs) Yeah, our neighborhood is nice and habitable, but in the city of our galaxy, There's a central point, somewhere downtown, that all the neighborhoods in the city rotate around.
0: So we're not just living north or south or east or west of downtown.
6: We're moving all the time. The Milky Way is swirling through space. So we're moving on one of these arms around the center of our own galaxy, around the center of the Milky Way, which is also moving with respect to other galaxies in our local group. Meaning our neighborhood of stars, which move with respect to the entire universe. So everything is moving.
0: (laughs) Whoa, so the solar system is really moving on so many levels.
6: Yeah, the
1: planets are moving around the sun, our solar system is moving around the Milky Way, and the Milky Way is moving with our neighbor galaxies, which are all moving through the universe.
0: Okay, okay, I I get it, but how do we know that that's what's happening and we're not actually dangling in a cosmic third grade classroom? I mean, we can't really get outside of the universe to double check, right? Right.
6: We actually can measure how fast we're moving within our own galaxy, but also compared to other galaxies. We know how fast we're going, what things are coming towards us, what things are moving away from us. Astronomers have figured out that our solar system is
1: orbiting around the galaxy's center at a rate of 230 kilometers, or 143 miles, a second. Which means that it takes us 200 million years to rotate all the way around. Our nearest large neighbor galaxy, Andromeda, is moving towards us, and we're orbiting along with it in what's called a supercluster of galaxies. But outside of that, everything is moving away from us, and the further away it is, the faster it's moving.
0: Whoa, that's amazing.
6: Did I just blow your mind? <laughs>
0: <laughs> the universe is so big. But how did we find all this stuff out?
6: We can do all of this with spectroscopy.
0: So what's spectroscopy?
6: You can think of it as a
1: stargazing technique that's a little bit more complicated than going outside and looking up. It involves looking at light from a distant object. You just need something called a prism.
6: And if you put a prism in front of optical light, you'll see um, certain atoms absorbing the light or um, emitting the light, depending on which way you're you're looking at. And by optical light, you mean light that we can see. Yep. Yeah. But
1: a prism, it's kind of it's kind of like a crystal, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's an that's an easy way
6: to think of it.
0: It's sort of like that pink Floyd album cover for the Dark Side of the Moon. You see light going into a triangle, and it comes out as a rainbow on the other side.
6: Exactly. That rainbow is the key to spectroscopy. When you have this continuous rainbow, there will be little um, dark streaks across the rainbow. And those dark streaks actually represent the fingerprints of atoms.
0: Wait, so atoms have fingers?
6: No! Fingerprints! Stephanie is talking about
1: the way we can identify what atoms are in the dark parts of the rainbow
6: even if we can't actually see them. Anything that you see in the periodic table actually has a set of fingerprints, just like you have your own fingerprints and I have my own fingerprints. Every atom and every molecule has their own fingerprints.
0: So what do the fingerprints tell us?
6: So when we look at stars that are outside of our galaxy, those, those dark streaks will actually move. They'll move either left or right, and that tells us whether or not that star is moving closer or further away to us.
1: The atomic fingerprints provide the reference point. So if you see the fingerprint in one spot one night, and then the next night it's a little bit further left, we can measure exactly how the star is moving and how our galaxy is moving in relation to it.
0: Oh, so it's kind of like our ancestors tracking how planets move in the night sky, but much more advanced.
1: Yeah, it's kind of the classic story of technology. Isaac Newton was among the first scientists to do experiments with how optical light moves through a prism. And astronomers
6: like Galileo started to put prisms on telescopes and point them up at the sun. So this is a technique that's been around for a very, very long time. We've gotten very good at doing it though. Um, So we can now detect things that are much, much fainter than you can see with the human eye. We can detect things at different wavelengths that we can't see with the human eye. Technology has brought us to a whole different level where now we can look at and try to detect the first stars and galaxies in our universe. Technology
1: has brought us to the project Stephanie is working on now, the James Webb Space Telescope. NASA is getting ready to launch it into space next
6: year, over 20 years after scientists first began dreaming it up. It's six and a half meters in diameter. It's massive. The whole telescope itself stands over two stories high.
1: It's a honeycomb pattern of gold-plated mirrors mounted onto a massive sunshield, like a platform floating in space. It's designed to be extremely sensitive to those tiny dark streaks or wavelengths that Stephanie was talking about.
0: You can check out images on the blog on our website, tumblepodcast.com. It's really incredible to see.
1: It's beautiful. With the help of spectroscopy, this telescope will allow astronomers to study the very first stars and galaxies in the universe to understand how our solar system and every other solar system came to be.
0: Wow, So that's super amazing.
1: The telescope can also shine a powerful light closer to Earth.
6: There's all kinds of things that we want to know about the solar system, and it's it's so funny to think that um, it's here, it's our home, um, but there's so many things we don't know. So while we have this extremely sensitive telescope that's supposed to detect very faint things, I want to point it at the brightest and fastest moving things in the sky. So objects in our own solar system. Objects that sound unimaginably awesome. We have a couple of moons in our solar system that actually have volcanoes on them.
0: What? Moon volcanoes? I want to see that.
6: So does Stephanie. She wants to
1: study their chemistry to see if they might host life.
0: You mean moon people? (laughs) I mean, probably not people.
1: Whatever there is probably pretty cool.
0: (laughs) So she can study chemistry without even setting foot on a lunar volcano?
1: Yeah, that's a thing we can do now. And it's all because we've learned how to make the tools to get answers to our questions about the universe.
6: For hundreds of years, we've been doing the same thing. We've been looking through telescopes to look at stars, to find new things. With modern day astronomy though, we have better technology so we can see further, we can see different things. And that's part of the quest. Every time we find something new, or we think there should be something new, that's what we're looking for. And if we find it, it's how did it get there? What is it? Um, How is it going to evolve? Is it going to do something even more spectacular?
1: I feel like those styrofoam ball models of the solar system really don't do it justice. Like, I wonder if you could build a model of the planets rotating around the sun, rotating around the Milky Way, and traveling through the expanding universe. <laughs>
0: I would mean, be pretty crazy, but I think doable. Sounds like a great project for our listeners.
1: They're probably better builders than we are.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. No question. <laughs> If you've got an idea of how to make that happen, send us your schematic drawing or photos of models if you actually do. That would be so
1: awesome. If you
0: can build it to scale, that would be even more amazing.
1: Oh my god.
0: <laughs> it would take up a couple <laughs> acres.
1: <laughs> send them in to tumblepodcast at gmail.com or upload them on the contact form on our website. Thanks to Stephanie Milam, Deputy Project Scientist for Planetary Science on the James Webb Space Telescope for NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. Special thanks to Haley Gillespie and Joel Green for their help with this episode. Our interview was recorded at the 2017 meeting of the American Astronomical Society in Austin, Texas.
0: Sarah Lentz is our associate producer.
1: I'm Lindsay Patterson, and I wrote and produced this show.
0: And I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I made all the music. Thanks so much for listening, and tune in next time for more stories of science discovery.
1: Hi, I'm Lindsay.
0: And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery.
1: Today we're going to hear from a listener with a plan that could save our world and help build a
0: new one. We're going on a journey to find out how scientists turn an idea into reality from Earth to Mars.
1: Our listener Elon has a question that's really more of an idea.
2: Hi, my name is Elon, and I'm 10 years old. With the problem of producing too much CO2 on Earth, how can we get rid of it? Can it be filtered and broken down?
0: Okay, so Elon is talking about solving climate change. You know, just the biggest issue facing our planet today.
2: Elon
1: knows what to do with that extra carbon dioxide.
2: I have been thinking about sending all of that to mars hopefully in the near future it would increase chances to populate mars and continue to sustain life on earth
0: there's one thing i'd like to have happen it's to populate mars
1: and sustain life on earth
0: (laughs) i mean (laughs) that's mine (laughs) yeah i guess that's fair fair point
1: Well, Elon told us that he came up with this idea because he loves watching science videos and reading National Geographic. He saw an invention that extracted carbon dioxide from the air, and then he read about the idea of putting power plants on Mars to make more CO2 for its atmosphere.
0: Bye-bye global warming, and think of the vacation home opportunities.
1: So Elon's thought process was... Why not just take our extra CO2 and send it over to Mars? Kind of the two birds, one stone type thing. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good to me. But when you have a great idea, what do you do to figure out if it could actually work? And then how do you make it happen?
0: Yeah, because Elon's idea involves so many challenges in so many different areas of science.
1: Scientists have learned to bring all these diverse areas of science together to make amazing things happen. So today... We're going to take Elon's idea on the start of a scientific journey, beginning right here in Barcelona.
0: Okay, so you went to a crowded room.
1: Exactly. I went to a scientific conference or meeting.
0: It's like a worldwide science water cooler.
1: It's a place where scientists hear each other's research, get inspired, and in many cases, they start working together to make ideas into reality. The meeting I went to was called the International Congress of Sustainability, Science, and Engineering. And that's where I met a scientist who could help answer the first part of Elon's question.
7: So, I'm Kristina Zakuciova. I'm from Slovakia originally, but I work in Prague in the Czech Republic. And basically, I'm also a (laughs) singer.
1: Kristina studies carbon capture and storage that's taking carbon from the air and putting it back into the ground. She was also a finalist on the Czech Republic's version of The Voice.
0: And she really impressed the Czech version of (laughs) Silo.
1: I wanted to talk to her about how to filter carbon from the air, but first,
7: I read her Elon's question. How would you answer that question? <laughs> you know, I like very much that actually kids, or let's say non-scientific, like this like serious scientific community, they have these brilliant ideas. Christina got started in science because she had the
1: same question that's at the heart of Elon's idea
7: how can I make this world better? What can I do from my position? Even though I'm just a little person in this huge world, but I can do something. And yeah, that's what I want to say to everybody. Like, yeah, let's do something together and, and, you know, collaborate, talk with each other, put it on a table, and I think the people will listen. Okay, so if you were going to try to figure out how to ship... Carbon dioxide to Mars, like what's the first step? The main idea or the main process, what should need to be done, is a brainstorming with different people from a different areas.
0: Okay, so is Christina the person who can tell us about the carbon dioxide part?
7: She is, and it
1: turns out scientists and engineers have been working on this technology.
7: Right now, currently, what is happening is that the scientific community is trying to develop the process, which is the capturing, the CO2, on some sorbents. is talking about absorbent materials,
1: a solid compound that absorbs the carbon dioxide gas. Get ready for some chemistry.
7: If you have CO2 and you have um, calcium oxide, C-A-O, if you put them together, you have calcium carbonate.
1: To put the gas in the solid together, they're cooked at a very high temperature and pressure to create a chemical reaction. Voila, you've got your calcium carbonate, the same material that a snail's shell is made out of. Delicious. <laughs> don't eat that. Yeah, don't, don't ever eat that. Because what that means is that your carbon dioxide is now in an easier-to-store solid form rather than a sneaky, easy-to-escape gas. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so where do they store it? Is there like a U-Haul, like U-Haul self-storage place for carbon?
1: <laughs> the CO2 goes into deep holes like old used-up oil wells, and then it's sealed
0: shut. Sort of like a high-tech underground carbon dioxide garbage can. Basically. So it's not hard to see that Mars would be a better place to keep this stuff, because there would actually be like a useful purpose for that carbon dioxide. So now that we know the first step of Elon's problem is solved, what do we do next?
1: Now we have to go to Mars.
8: I'm Scott Gazzatech. I'm a research astrophysicist here at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. And I primarily study uh, the Mars atmosphere.
1: Scott is part of the team that drives the Curiosity rover across the surface of Mars, which is only a lot bit cool. (laughs) I told Scott about Elon's idea and asked him if he thought carbon dioxide from Earth might help make Mars habitable.
8: Right now Mars' atmosphere um, is almost entirely carbon dioxide. It's about 95 or 96 percent carbon dioxide.
1: A much smaller percent of Earth's atmosphere is carbon dioxide, but the Martian atmosphere is a lot thinner. So to get to something like Earth's atmosphere, it would need a ton more carbon dioxide.
0: Awesome. So it sounds like we're getting somewhere with this brainstorming thing. But wait. Uh
8: Uh-oh.
1: Scott told me there's a bigger problem with Mars's atmosphere.
8: The problem that, that we've discovered is that Mars is losing atmosphere to space all the time and has probably lost... A lot of atmosphere to space over its history. What? Why? Why can't
0: Mars hang on to its atmosphere? Is it like it will never find love? <laughs>
1: <laughs> the atmosphere that got away.
2: <laughs>
1: um, no, it's because it's missing something really important called a magnetic field, which is like its ability to love atmosphere. <laughs>
0: So like a giant field full of magnets, we have one of those on Earth?
1: No, no. Around our planet, we have a force field that serves as a barrier between our atmosphere and space. It keeps out harmful particles that come from the sun and holds all the elements of our atmosphere in.
8: But Mars does not have such a magnetic field. And so all that all that energy, all those charged particles, just directly rain onto the atmosphere. And some of those help kind of pull away little bits of the atmosphere constantly, all the time.
1: So the issue is that any kind of attempt to modify Mars's atmosphere is going to have to be continually managed in a really intensive way.
8: Yeah, you'd have to you'd have to manage it, and you'd also um, you know need to, to bring in these materials from somewhere else, probably like Elon's comment, um, because probably Mars doesn't have enough left because of how much it's lost over time.
0: Okay, so this is sounding pretty good for Elon's idea, but we have a new problem. How do we stabilize the atmosphere enough to make it habitable?
1: You're not going to believe this, but Scott told me he was at a scientific conference (laughs) and he heard an idea of how to do it.
8: So the one proposal that some NASA scientists had earlier this year was creating an artificial magnetic field for Mars. And it was a pretty neat idea.
0: Wow, so this is like watching magic happen.
1: I mean, this is kind of amazing. I'm feeling like this is fated to happen.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of, we need to find someone to ship all this carbon dioxide to Mars. So is there like an Amazon Prime service you could use, like next day CO2 delivery?
1: (laughs) Not quite.
8: For the Mars missions that NASA does now, we have launch windows about every two years. And that just is dictated by how Earth and Mars pass each other in their orbits.
1: NASA has to wait to launch rockets until Earth and Mars are close together or as close as they'll ever be. Currently, it takes about six to nine months for a package to make the journey to Mars.
0: Gotta start planning way ahead of time for Martian Christmas.
1: You really should send two packages of Earth socks at a time.
0: The Curiosity Rover is all like socks? Oh, I wanted a motorcycle. <laughs> back to CO2.
1: Right. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about what it would look like to ship CO2 from Earth to Mars?
8: Right now, you know, when we launch uh, spacecraft to Mars, we you know, we put them on big rockets and we send them all the way to Mars and, and we end up landing a small amount. So imagine one of those huge rockets that, that launches something like the Curiosity rover. It only ends up bringing about one ton of stuff down to Mars's surface. We need billions of tons of CO2 to be removed from our atmosphere and then if we want to ship it to Mars.
0: So, like, it would take a couple trips.
1: What we've come to is a pretty significant engineering challenge in Elon's plan. I
8: don't know how we're going to get over that one. So if we want to deliver things to Mars, we want to maybe deliver it from a place that that we wouldn't have to work very hard to get it removed from. And so places like that would be, you know, asteroids and comets. If we could somehow, you know, grab those asteroids and comets and basically, you know, kind of grind them up and deliver that uh, carbon dioxide and into Mars's atmosphere, you know, maybe that's a much more feasible scenario than, than kind of lifting it all the way off of Earth and then putting it onto Mars.
0: I mean, grabbing and grinding asteroids would be pretty cool, too, but we've still got the problem of what to do with
8: all of our extra carbon dioxide. I think if we want to get rid of the CO2 in our atmosphere, you know, I think we're going to end up storing it back, kind of back where it came from, which is underground.
0: Which is what Christina's working on. It's like we're right back to where we started.
1: Exactly. Because... even though it seems that the sky is the limit in space, or, like, beyond the sky... <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, the sky is kind of the limit in space.
1: <laughs> space also exists in the real world. So even though, technically, there could be a way to package and ship our CO2 off to Mars to thicken the Martian atmosphere, cost is a big part of the equation.
8: You know, that's the restriction that uh, that people who you know want to go in space operate under, unfortunately. You know, it's not... It's not necessarily even the technology. It's, you know, it's the it's the cost to to use that technology.
0: So basically shipping CO2 to Mars would blow the space budget. Astronauts <laughs> would be like, "Hey, why can't we have dessert anymore?" <laughs> it's because we used our whole budget to ship CO2. You're saving the Earth, astronaut. <laughs> Don't complain about the lack of ice cream. <laughs>
1: Part of brainstorming an idea is about learning the restrictions or the things that would keep the idea from happening in the real world. In this case, it's money, but all great ideas adjust and change from the first concept or they spin out to other ideas.
8: And so if we can find a way to make going to space as simple as, you know, flying from New York to Los Angeles or or something like that you know that just totally changes the game and and really makes space not some mystical frontier but but just another place that humans go on a regular basis so
0: maybe elon can be one of the people who have ideas to make space cheaper
1: exactly so we asked elon what he thought of our investigation and our findings
2: I was kind of expecting this because in the beginning of the space age, people wanted to go to Mars after they went to the moon, but it was too expensive. So I have a new idea of planting space stations in space at least half the distance from the Earth to the moon all the way to Mars and beyond. So the rockets can get refills on fuel and they can be fixed so they can go to Mars.
0: That's a, that's a really good idea, like, get in a gas station, a mechanic shop, and maybe, like, a bathroom. Definitely need a bathroom. <laughs> Even if you don't have to go at the space station, you should go.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And
2: Elon also has a new idea for that pesky disappearing Martian atmosphere. We can put magnets around Mars to stabilize its, its magnetic field and protect it from radiation.
1: Elon should definitely talk to that NASA scientist that Scott told us about, the one who wants to create an artificial magnetic field for Mars, because that's essentially Elon's plan too.
0: So has he got his PhD already? (laughs) Get that boy to a science conference.
1: Honestly, because you don't need to wait until you're a grown-up with a, you know, fancy cap and gown to start sharing your scientific ideas with other people. You never know where it might lead you.
0: Do you have a great idea you've been floating around? What would it take for it to happen? Brainstorm, get information, and find out if there's any restrictions. Then see if you can test your idea. That's the next step.
1: Let us know what happens by emailing us at tumblepodcast at gmail.com. We want to hear all of your great ideas. Thanks to Kristina Zakatsiova, PhD candidate at the University of Chemistry and Technology in Prague, And Scott Guzach, research astrophysicist at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. Special thanks to Michaela Sosby. Big thanks to Elon Penaloza for sharing his idea with us, and his parents, Ginia and Miguel, for helping out.
0: You can check out resources for this episode on our blog at sciencepodcastforkids.com.
1: Sarah Lentz is our editor. I'm Lindsay Patterson, and I host and produce this show.
0: And I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I make all of the music. Thanks for joining us, and stay tuned for more stories of science discovery.
2: Hi,
1: I'm Lindsay.
0: And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery.
1: Today's show is about everyone's favorite space object of doom.
0: And we're not talking about the Death Star, we're talking about black holes.
1: Black holes! How do scientists find out about them without getting sucked inside and never escaping? And what do they want to know? We're about to find out.
5: What's your name?
1: My name is Charlie. Charlie recorded a question with his mom for us. What's your question?
2: How do black holes work?
0: Well, how do they work? I mean, I guess they just sit there and stuff falls into them.
1: Kind of like a waterfall?
0: Yeah, like a space waterfall.
1: Ooh, Black holes are actually one of the biggest mysteries in space. And people have been thinking or theorizing about them for over 200 years, way before astronomers could detect their existence or even begin to understand how they work. Our producer, Sarah, happens to work at the University of Texas, a short walk away from one of the world's top experts on black holes. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, Marshall. Hey. So, you're here to help us talk about black holes because we don't know a lot
5: about them. I am so excited to help answer a question about black holes and I knew just the guy to ask.
9: I'm Carl Gapart. Uh, I've been working on black holes for many years, trying to measure their masses inside of galaxies. He's a professor here
5: at the university and he took me to his lab where they're building tools to find dark objects like black holes in space. So, where are we going?
9: Up, up one floor. Yeah, this is where we're building all of our spectrographs. Uh, what do they say? A spectrograph.
5: Yeah. What's a spectrograph? Spectrographs are like the heart of every big telescope.
9: Yeah. So it's the it's the essence, I would say, of astronomy.
5: Astronomers use spectrographs to determine far more than pictures ever could. They reveal motion, but also temperature and chemical composition of all the things seen by the telescope. And all your observations on black holes use these? Yes. Oh.
9: Is the lab open? Can we? Yeah. Is that
5: okay? So, not... Sarah, what did the lab
1: actually look like? It's just a normal room?
9: Yeah, it's a normal room, but
5: filled with spectrograph parts. And they look basically like barrels, shiny barrels, filled with honeycomb shaped mirrors that look like rainbows are trapped inside.
1: And I'm guessing there's unicorns inside, too.
5: The science is still out on that, but Carl says. His space discoveries basically all come from the information found from parts like these. So it's like
1: unicorns for him.
9: (laughs) (laughs) I take data from a telescope and I write a computer program to try to analyze this and trying to interpret how the universe came into existence.
5: Wow, so he's finding out how the universe started? He's trying to figure out how everything started. He travels the world looking through telescopes into the furthest points of space, gathers all the data, and then, you know, tries to figure it out.
9: I'm an observer, and I'm trying to understand where we come from.
5: I knew we should talk to Carl about black holes because he's famous around the university for measuring more black holes than anyone else in the world.
9: There are probably 80 to 100 black holes that have been measured in the universe now. I've probably been involved in maybe 40 to 50 of them.
0: But are they hard to find, or is it just like picking apples off an apple tree?
5: Black holes, like any dark object, are hard to find.
9: You can't see them. Light cannot escape. By theory, by definition, by everything we know and love, um, you can't see a black hole. That's where spectrographs
5: come in. They help find and measure objects moving near the black hole, which look very different than parts of space without black holes.
9: For example, if you saw a star that was going around in a circle and nothing in the middle, you'd say, oh, what's going on in that situation? Stars don't do that. They move because they move under a gravitational influence.
1: Oh, okay. So it's because you see other things acting in a certain way. You would know something was there, even if you can't see it with
5: your own eyes. Like, you know there's wind because you see the leaves move. And that's what Carl was basically trying to do. He was trying to find black holes from looking at the stuff moving around them. When Carl started looking for black holes with the Hubble Space Telescope about 20 years ago, he didn't even know if he'd find one.
9: And that time was just crazy fun. It would take me at that time, like a few months, just to do a one galaxy. And boom, I'd say, yeah, here's a black hole. I'm like just jumping from galaxy to galaxy to galaxy. And it's like so exciting. So he's like, (laughs) you get a black hole and you get a black hole.
0: Everybody gets a black hole.
1: Yeah. Jumping from galaxy to galaxy, finding black holes everywhere does sound super exciting.
0: So it's like he's a black hole space hunter explorer but he's really on Earth just looking at spreadsheets.
5: Hey, guys, maybe we should get back to Charlie's original question. How do
2: black (gasps) holes work?
9: (laughs) Uh, You know, they they don't work. They just sit there and they just have things fall into them and be a center of gravity. They're our laziest workers, I guess I would say. (laughs)
0: Somehow I never really thought of black holes as being, like, lazy. Like, you know, they don't clean up their rooms or get up for work.
5: Yeah, it doesn't seem like they have to try very hard. Well, I mean, they don't really, because gravity is doing all the work for them. Black holes are made because of gravity. The things moving outside the black holes move because of gravity. And the things that get sucked inside get sucked inside because of gravity.
9: If you're caught inside a black hole, you can never escape. This is a gravity becoming so strong that it just warps everything around it and you are effectively cut off from our universe. You can see it, but you can't get back out into it. And that is really awesome.
0: I mean, it's awesome, but I I think I'd rather not be stuck in a black hole if I have the choice.
9: Me too. I
1: mean, I understand you're trapped in there because of gravity, but how does gravity make a black hole?
5: Well, a simple way to think about gravity is it's basically just a force, right, that's pulling you down towards a large object. It's what keeps us from floating off the earth.
0: I thought heavy hats were the only things keeping us from floating (laughs) off the earth. That's... (laughs) That's why we wear them.
5: It is a little bit more powerful than a really heavy hat. And the larger the object, the stronger the gravity. What happens is there's this point when an object gets so heavy that the gravity is so strong that everything just collapses down.
9: You take the whole Earth and you squeeze it down to the size of the grape, Then it becomes a black hole. So anything can become a black hole as long as you squeeze it down to a high enough density.
5: Astronomers call that point of collapse the singularity, and there's one at the center of every black hole.
9: It's the ultimate win for gravity. Effectively, and this is the mathematical term, space-time closes in on itself.
1: Whoa, so black holes are like a gravity superpower?
0: Uh, Bending space and time inside out is a pretty cool superpower. I'll bet you could stop at least one robbery that way.
5: It is the coolest of superpowers, and the result of when space and time go inside out are just, well, as you might imagine, crazy.
0: So what can this gravity superpower do if you get stuck inside a black hole? Or if you're trapped in one of those things, like, what would it look like?
9: It's, it's like you're living on the inside of a sphere. And if you were inside of a black hole and, say, I took a flashlight or a laser pointer and I pointed it straight away from my face, it would come around the back and hit me in the back of the head because space-time is curved in on itself and so what this light beam is doing it's like traveling in this curved path inside of a black hole.
1: What I think is that we should send a cat into a black hole and just drive them crazy with flashlights. (laughs)
5: So what I'm hearing is you're not a cat person. They would love it. They would love it. You know they would. (laughs)
0: Yeah. They'd be like, it's over here, but it's over there. It's over here.
5: Well, this is just one idea. Scientists don't know what happens inside a black hole and that's just one of the ultimate goals in science right now is to figure that out.
1: Yeah, so there's probably just a black hole full of cats that are perfectly happy because nobody's bothering them. So
5: any theories that don't involve cats...
0: Uh no. Maybe do you get to meet the overcat?
5: All really good. Uh but Carl had some other ideas.
9: Porthole to another universe, you know, access to a higher dimension, etc. etcetera. Et cetera. And that's where you get some crazy Hollywood films.
5: Black holes are just fun, and the thing is that they're also super important. Carl says they could be the key to understanding physics. And how the universe works.
9: This is how we make advancements in science. Um, If we can explain all the details of what goes on inside of a black hole, that means we understood how gravity works on very small scales. That will be fundamental.
0: So do scientists ever know anything 100%? Like I remember uh, most science quizzes you give have pretty clear right or wrong answers.
5: Yeah, that might make it easier. But I think Carl would say that's missing the point.
9: You can never prove anything in science. That's not what science is about. Science is basically about checking off the alternatives and being left with the last one standing. Right now, the last one standing is black hole. No one's come up with a really good alternative. But that's what science is. Again, you never really get to whatever you call the ultimate truth. I'm not sure what ultimate truth means.
1: So is he saying that
5: the idea of black holes themselves could be disproven? Yep. Basically, black holes are Just the best theory so far to explain what Carl and others have observed going on out in the universe.
0: Well, if they weren't true or if they weren't real, wouldn't that just completely turn his whole career upside down?
5: Well, yeah, it could. And I asked him, what if someone found something tomorrow that proved everything he thought he knew was just wrong?
9: I want a theory to to come along that can explain that. We've been struggling for a long time. And we're not there yet and explain what goes on inside of a black hole. And so, I, you know, we need a revolution. Maybe I suspect it's going to take one smart person to think outside the box or to think inside the box, inside the black hole, and to come up with a new model.
1: So someone who's in school right now could be the one to find out something huge and new about black holes or whatever it is that's out there. Exactly
0: so like maybe if the overcat is really hanging out inside of black holes and just controlling the behavior of every cat that makes a lot universe, it's starting to make sense it's cats. all coming together yeah. yeah yeah that then we understand why people keep cats as pets because i never got it before.
5: it also explains gravity i think <laughs> 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 my job here is done
7: all made stardust. Stardust. Us all is what art does. The universe is so marvelous
0: my though, my name is Barnabas. If you have any crazy outside of the box theory about black holes, we want to hear it.
1: Email them to us at tumblepodcast at gmail.com. Contact us through our website at tumblepodcast.com or message us on Facebook or Twitter.
0: Drawings are always a bonus. We love seeing drawings.
1: And we'll post them on our website when we get them. So, Sarah, thank you so much for coming over and enlightening us about black holes.
5: No problem. It was so much fun. And thanks to Carl Gephardt, professor of astrophysics at the University of Texas at Austin.
1: I'd like to thank Secret Agent 23 Skidoo for the music in this episode. It's from his upcoming album, Infinity Plus One, a big bang of intergalactic rap and stellar storytelling. It's science hip hop,
0: which is awesome.
7: Yeah, it's like a take in the house.
0: Well, that just about does it for our space episodes. Thank you so much for listening. If you finished this episode and still are thirsty for more Tumble, make sure you're subscribed to our feed on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you soon when we blast off into our next new season in a few short weeks.